what a fantastic time of year it has been. I trust that you and your family had a great Christmas celebrating the birth of the Messiah, God with us. And we've been celebrating throughout this month as we've been talking about our Christmas offering. And uh, we always want to thank you for your generosity as you have given throughout the year, this unprecedented year, and throughout the years here at Calvary. Uh, the, the funds that come in to Calvary fuel ministry here on our campus, in our community, and around the world. Our Christmas offering represents about 25% of our offering revenue each year. And we always rely on this month of December just to be a fantastic blessing from you, God's people here at Calvary, and from God himself. Our Christmas offering this year, we have a goal of about $2.1 million for the total Christmas offering. That represents a $1.6 million general fund goal and also represents about a $500,000 generations goal. And combined, that is the $2.1 million. And one of the hallmarks, again, as we've talked throughout the month of our Christmas offering is the fact that we do pay for all of our global partners, individuals and families that we partner with around the world, those that rely upon us for some of their income, we pay for that in one month, in the month of January. And this year, that's no different. We continue to provide support in our giveaway and just what we do around the world with our partners. And even more so this year, counting, coming forward in 2021, uh, those folks are counting on us and counting on you as we give to them and as you give to the Christmas offering here at Calvary. Also, again, that generation's goal of 500,000 as we are completing. In fact, this last week, we've completed the interior portion of our special abilities ministry build out. It's a fantastic place. We can't wait for you to see it. We're going to be using that tool here in the very near future, just in the next several weeks. You'll hear Brian Howard talk about that in just a moment. But we're so excited about that, and I'm so excited to report to you the fantastic news that we've received thus far in the month of December, over $1.5 million toward our Christmas offering. Thank you for your generosity, and thank God for blessing his people here at Calvary and blessing us through you. Uh, we haven't counted all of the offerings that have come in over this holiday week. And so we, we know that the number is a little bit more than what, we're, what is uh, reported here. But uh, we're grateful for that one and a half million and we're so grateful that we believe we're well on our way to meet that goal. I wanna represent that to you in this chart uh, and shows you that we're about 74% of the way there. Um, we have a little over $550,000 remaining toward this goal. We would continue to ask you to pray and ask what God would have you to do. We continue to ask you to give generously, and we want to always thank you, and we never take for granted your generosity, so thank you so much. Our ways to give are, as we've been talking about throughout our Christmas season, it's a little different uh, with the boxes around campus, but if you're on campus as you come and worship outside and as we talk about even coming inside, there's boxes available to you to give physically. You can always mail still checks to us. They have to be postmarked by the 31st in order for tax purposes to get the deduction this year. If you have any questions about giving, please uh, ask me. You can call me here at the office, email me, or email Rick Fusilier or call him, and we would be happy to help you. Our information is on our website, calvarywestlake.org give. And always the easiest way to give digitally here at Calvary is through our Calvary Westlake app. Download that app and set that up. We want to, again, always thank you 
for what you're doing and your generosity here at Calvary. So thank you. I have been giving reports each week, if you've been with us, about Pastor Sean and his health. I'm happy to report to you he continues to recover very well. Uh, in fact, he's feeling much better, and, and daily he gets stronger. His breathing is better. Uh, he does have pneumonia. He's recovering really well from that. It's a bacterial pneumonia, non-COVID-related. Uh, he does thank you for your prayers and for your thoughts. I know many of you say to me, let him know we're praying for him. He knows that, and he feels it, and he is recovering really well. He'll be with us here in just uh, a week or so, actually, in the next couple weeks, he'll be coming back and coming back and, and being a part here at Calvary. And we're glad he's had this time off to rest and recuperate. Well, Brian is going to introduce a new sermon series. Brian Howard, our teaching pastor. I know you've appreciated his teaching, as I have, and he's going to be introducing a new sermon series to us this week. Pastor Brian. Thanks, Pastor Troy. And we're looking forward to jumping into a new series. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go to the book of James. We're going to be opening up the book of James and walking verse by verse through that over the course of the next many weeks as we jump into um, the new year um, and finish off 2020 and start 2021. So the book of James is where we're going to be. But before we get to the book of James, I want to give you yet another update here on what's going on around here at Calvary. Uh, I know just a few weeks ago, I stood up here and gave you an update about what was going to happen with our Christmas Eve services, and I want to give you yet another one based on new information we've received. First, I want to tell you what information we received and what has changed and what has happened. Then I want to let you know what Calvary's response to that is going to be and how we're going to proceed forward. The information you need to know is that this last weekend, actually last Saturday, the 19th, uh, we received word that the county of Los Angeles, which Calvary resides in, we are just right there on the, the, the outskirts of Los Angeles County, has changed their regulations and changed their guidelines for how churches can operate in the midst of this pandemic. And the two major changes they made that affect us, we believe in a positive way that opens up options for us, is that they are now um, allowing churches to meet um, if they decide to do so inside. Um, so churches are allowed and able to meet inside. Uh, and then they have removed all numerical caps, whether it be percentages or a total number of people who can gather at a church at one time. And so we as a church are grateful for this. We have been anticipating this over the last month. Uh, you've heard me mention court cases that have come down. This is directly connected to what I mentioned before, but we've been looking forward to this. We are grateful for the recognition of our rights and capacity um, to move forward as a church and, and minister in the best way possible. Um, and um, we're going to be moving forward with that. So I um, also want to let you know uh, that as they've made those changes, the two, cha the two things they've left in place um, that Calvary as a church, we have already committed to doing so, uh, is that while there's not a numerical cap, there is a cap um, given how many people that we can socially distance in a given room. And so all we've been asked to do is continue to wear masks while here inside on campus and continue to socially distance. And so while there's not a numerical cap, we will be limiting attendance for the time being inside so that we can make sure families, those who don't live in the same household, are socially distanced. So that's the information of what happened. Los Angeles has changed their rules and regulations, and we as a church that have committed to submitting to the governing authorities, even when we haven't liked it, are celebrating that because it gives us more options on how we can gather as a church. And as you've heard me say before, our pattern going forward is going to be get to gather online, 
outside and indoors, depending on what your comfort level is. So that's the big picture. And then I want to walk you through what that's going to mean specifically for us here as a church as we head into January 2021, as we begin the new year next weekend. So let me talk to you first about what's going to happen over the next two weekends. We'll put this slide up. The weekends of January 2nd and 3rd and the weekend of January 9th and 10th. So one week from now and two weeks from now for these two weekends, here's what you can expect. Saturday nights, 6 p.m., we're going to welcome you to join us here in the worship center inside for worship. You can join us here for church. We're going to require you and ask you to pre-register so we can keep an idea of the numbers and make sure we're able to socially distance. But that's going to be Saturday nights at 6 p.m. You can join us inside here for worship. Then for these two weekends and these two weekends only, in the beginning of the year, Sunday, 9 and 11 a.m., we're going to gather outside on our patio. Those outdoor services will remain the same as they've had for a number of months here. And we're going to invite you to worship with us either indoors at 6 p.m. on Saturday night or outside on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. That indoor service at 6 p.m. is not going to have early childhood or elementary or student ministry programming. And so we invite you to attend as a family if you want to join us indoors for church starting next weekend on Saturday night. So this is going to be the pattern for us for the first two weeks of the year. Sort of an interim step for us as we prepare for the weekend of January 16th and 17th. So let me walk you through that weekend. Starting on the weekend of January 16th and 17th, that's the third weekend of the new year, we are going to have all three of our main worship services, Saturday night, 6 p.m., and Sunday morning, 9 and 11 a.m., here in the worship center. You're going to be able to join us here in the worship center um, for all of those services. Once again, we're going to require pre-registration. And for those of you who are wondering why, this isn't about tracking your data. This isn't about getting information on people. This is purely about us as a church trying to get our arms around how many people are wanting to attend so we can properly socially distance. We're telling you that this is not going to be a forever thing, this pre-registration, but it is a for now thing. And so we're going to ask you to pre-register for those services each week beginning January 16th and 17th and going forward into the new year um, for all three services inside here. Now we've committed to doing inside services, online services, which will continue at the same times that you're used to them having, but we've also committed to outdoor services. And given the resources we have, here's what we believe the best option is for outdoor services. On Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 9 a.m. only, we're going to do an outdoor simulcast service on the patio. That service will happen every Sunday at 9 a.m. And it's for those of you who want to be on campus and want to gather with us in worship, but don't yet want to come in to the worship center. We understand that position and we understand that posture and we want to welcome you to join us 9 a.m. every Sunday going forward outside on our patio. So this is the plan for January 16th and 17th. We're going to be gathering all three worship services in here in this room and you are welcome to join us um, with your family. You're welcome to join us in this space. Um, Pre-registration will be required. Masks will be required. We will do social distancing, but let me tell you how excited we are to start gathering here in this worship center for worship and praise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then on that January 16th and 17th weekend, I want to talk specifically to those of you who have children or students. Um, on Sunday, January 17th, here's the schedule you can expect. 
Those of you who have young kids, like myself, I have a three-year-old, you can expect early childhood to be open at 9 and 11 a.m. Right now, given the opening we're doing as we cautiously reopen these ministries, we're gonna begin with three to four-year-olds and create space for them to have a safe, healthy, fun environment where they learn about Jesus. And then later on, those who have younger children, that includes me as well as my youngest, um, we're gonna be waiting to hear from early childhood about when they're able to expand and open all of early childhood. But that's where we're gonna begin. And then elementary is going to be open at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. And our elementary ministry, along with our early childhood ministry, will be using a blend of indoor and outdoor environments and will have specific protocols to protect the health and well-being of your kids' while they're here. Those of you with middle and high school students, they'll be open at 11 a.m. on this weekend um, in their designated rooms. So the middle school room, the high school room, that's what you can expect. And then our special abilities ministry will be open that weekend at 11 a.m. And Pastor Troy just mentioned that new facility. We're looking forward to when they get to move into that facility and really be blessed by that investment. So that is our plan going forward. And that's for weekend worship services starting in January of 2021. Um, I want to answer a question just in conclusion here. Uh, we have a schedule and we've laid it out over the next few weeks. Um, some of you might be asking the question, and that's a fair question, why not just start right now? This is the last weekend of the year. Here we are right after Christmas. Why not just forge ahead right now? And that's a really good question, and it's something we have wanted to do. We have that desire. But one of the things we've learned is that in order to pull off weekend worship services well, we need to make sure we have the right volunteers recruited, retrained for how to do this in the midst of a pandemic and in place before we're able to do that. And so when it comes to our children's ministry, even when it comes to ushers and greeters and tech folks in here, we wanna make sure we have our volunteers in place. It takes a lot of people to run a weekend here at Calvary. And I wanna encourage you to join us on Saturday nights if you can, but that weekend of January 16th and 17th, Saturday nights, Sunday mornings, children and student ministries, we are looking forward to regathering as we move forward. So again, going forward, options for you online, outside, and inside, whatever's most comfortable for your family, given your needs, we're looking forward to regathering in this new way as we start off 2021. And I hope you'll get excited with us and plan on joining us on campus as we worship Jesus together. So that's our update going into 2021. Now we'll turn our attention um, to the book of James here. Uh, and those of you who have a Bible, again, James chapter one. Um, in order to introduce the book of James, here is what I'd like to do um, this weekend. My plan is to show you a video right now. And this video is from uh, our friends over at the Bible Project. And they put together incredible videos that introduce books of the Bible. And we've shown some of them before. I'm gonna show you one this morning. This is about the book of James. It gives you an overview of the whole book. It's about eight minutes Long, so it's a little longer than many videos we show, but I know you're going to be blessed by it and encouraged by it. Take a look at this introduction to the book of James. The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Jakobos, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. That's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the twelve disciples. But this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. 
After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs. And so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope 
for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who through Jesus has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about.
Well, I hope that was insightful for you. And, and for me, I, I love videos like that because it tries to show that books of the Bible aren't just a bunch of sayings thrown together, but something really weaved together by the Holy Spirit of God through James. And I think you're gonna be so encouraged as we go through this book study, as we walk verse by verse through the book of James, as we head into 2021. So again, if you got your Bible with you, I want that open in front of you. James chapter one, verse one, uh, will begin this way. Here's how it begins. It says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James begins the letter introducing himself and letting people know and understand who he is. He's James and he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Now here's what we understand about James. James is the brother of Jesus. James is the brother of Jesus. So this particular letter, this particular text we're gonna read is written by the brother of Jesus. And that's always something I wanna stop and linger on when I begin the book of James because I have to consider the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, is saying that he is a servant of God and, if you could put it in there, of his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is a fascinating thing about James and perhaps one of the strongest apologetic moments for us to consider in the New Testament because you've got to think about it, the fact that James is declaring that his brother Jesus is in fact the Lord and putting him on the same level as God. Like here's the question I would want to ask you to get you thinking about how stunning it is that James would declare Jesus to be Lord. Here's the question. What would your brother have to do for you to start believing He is God. Now I've got three brothers and let me tell you something. I know their weaknesses. I know their strengths. I know everything about them. It would be remarkable to me if I ever even got close to believing that my brother was God. But but what if my brother started to do miracles? What if my brother predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off? What if I saw my brother ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven? I think at that point I would start to believe that potentially there's something different about my brother. That's what we get in the book of James. We get the brother of Jesus explaining his view on who Jesus is and right from the very top declares Jesus to be the Lord, declares him to be on par with God. I think that's the thing that starts off this whole letter. This is being written by James, the brother of Jesus, who through everything he has seen in Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave, has declared him to be God, has recognized him to be God. It goes on in verse one, it says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So you saw in the video, and then you'll see here, this is written as a letter not to a specific church like Romans or Galatians or Ephesians might be in the New Testament, but rather to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so the temptation might be to think this is for some other group of people. You don't consider yourself part of the 12 tribes. But here's what the scriptures are doing here. It's using an image from the Old Testament people of God to describe the New Testament people of God. I believe this letter is being written to all Christians who are being represented as these 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes were the people of God in the Old Testament. We as followers of Jesus are the people of God in the New Testament, the new covenant. We are the new covenant people of God. And that's who this letter is written to. It's a universal letter, meaning it's written to Christians everywhere that we might learn from James and his perspective on who Jesus is and the kind of life he calls us toward. In verse two, it goes on this way. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. 
So this is one of the things I love about James. James doesn't begin with a bunch of ideas or thoughts or a philosophy over something, which is good and right in and of itself. James, one of the reasons I think James is so powerful to us is that he goes from zero to 100 real quick, right? It's just like James, a servant of Jesus, to the 12 tribes, greetings. Consider it joy when you are suffering. Consider it joy when you are walking through trials. But like James begins his letter by talking about how we go through trials of many kinds. And when he says trials of many kinds, he means the suffering, the difficult, and the hard parts of this life and this existence. When he talks about the trials of many kinds, he means the difficult things that you and I and every other Christian and every other human go through. And so he begins his letter with this reference to trials. And you gotta ask yourself why. Why not start with something easier? Why not start with something a little lighter? Why not start with something a little easier to digest? And here's why I think that's the case. You see, I think James understands, because he's seen Jesus so closely, he understands um, this truth that if you're not going to understand trials right, suffering and the difficult, hard things of life, if you don't have your mind and your heart understanding and having a perspective on trials and difficult things and hard things and suffering, you're not gonna get the rest of following Jesus right. Like in other words, if you anticipate that your entire time following Jesus is going to be easy and simple and pain-free and perfect, if that's your expectation of following Jesus, the rest of it will never fall into place because that is not at all the life that Jesus has called us toward. If you are gonna follow after Jesus, you are signing up for a life of suffering, a life of moving toward pain, a life of embracing the hard things in life, even the trials in life. And so James starts off by addressing these trials, but then here's what I wanna point out to you. James is not going to tell us that these trials we face in life are good in and of themselves. It's actually not what he's saying. He doesn't say, it is pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face many trials. He understands that our initial reaction to trials, to hard things, to suffering, to terrible moments in your family, to bad health diagnoses, to terrible things in our culture, he understands that our initial reaction to that is not going to be that this is joy. And that's why what he's saying isn't, it's perfect when trials happen. What he's trying to get us to do is to consider something. In other words, he wants to talk about our perspective. He wants to talk about how we see things, how we think about things. Like in other words, I want to put it to you this way, that our perspective on trials will shape our experience of them. Like our perspective on what this hard thing is, this suffering, this pain we're going through, our perspective on trials will always shape our experience of them. And you know this is true in all kinds of areas. If you've ever had a surgery that you've elected for, for your back or for your knee, you know that surgery is painful. It's a difficult thing to go through surgery. And yet your perspective on it says, I'm going to go through this difficult thing so that I can have healing on the other side. The same is true for any woman who's ever given birth, right? Like it is a difficult and a painful thing, but the perspective says that on the other side of this, there's the joy of my son or my daughter being born. And that changes our experience because we know something is coming. It's the same way with working out or the same way with any physical discipline that you do in your life. You know that it is difficult, but your perspective shapes your experience of them. And he's about to give us a perspective here. 
James is about to give us a perspective on our trials, on our suffering, on the difficult things of this life and the difficult things of this world. And I want you to see James's perspective. I want you to see the perspective that the Holy Spirit is giving us through James because your perspective on hard things in this world will always shape your experience. Here's the perspective James has in verse three. It says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you bet me mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what we're told. There are gonna be these trials, these difficult things, these hard times that you go through in life. And maybe 2020 has been filled with them for you. At your work, in your family, in your life, in your health, there have been these trials and difficult things. And I wanna point something out to you because this verse gets misunderstood all the time. This verse is not claiming that those trials in and of themselves, your suffering in and of itself is a good thing. That it's just a good thing in your life when you suffer. That is not what James is claiming here. And sometimes you'll hear Christians say the idea like, well, suffering is good and suffering is right. And what we want to do is suffer. It's not that suffering in and of itself is good. Actually, watch what the argument is here. It's to be, it, why is suffering? Why, why do we have a perspective on trial? It's because you know something's happening. And that's the testing of your faith is producing something within you. And then that perseverance finishes its work so you're mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it's not that suffering in and of itself is this good thing that we should celebrate. We celebrate suffering, trials, hard things in life because of what it produces. Let me give you an image, a metaphor, an illustration that might help you kind of understand this a little better. So I wanna talk to you about a subject that might be on your mind as you're even going into the new year. Maybe you're someone who wants to get in better physical shape and maybe you've thought to yourself, maybe it's time for me to start lifting weights. Let me talk to you about lifting weights. You imagine someone who's in a gym and they have a dumbbell or a barbell and they're lifting it up off the ground or they're doing a press or a curl or they're somehow moving around weight in the gym. You gotta think about the moment itself where they're moving around weight in the gym. There's nothing actually beautiful being done for the world in that moment, right? It's just a heavy piece of metal being picked up off the floor and then dropped down on the floor, being lifted up in the air and then going down a few inches. The observation is that when you're lifting weights, the good isn't that the weight is being lifted up and then being put down. That actually doesn't produce anything. It's kind of a silly exercise if that was all that happens. But when you think about lifting weights and when you think about exercise in general, here's what we all recognize, that lifting weights leads to something. And the two things that lifting weights leads to, and everyone knows this, this is not like some deep spiritual concept is this, that when you lift weights, lifting weights leads to two things. Number one, it leads to endurance, right? You get more endurance. You're able to endure longer. You're able to lift longer. Your body is able to endure the physical demands of this world more. Like when you lift weights, you're able to build your endurance to run, build your endurance to perform athletically. You are able to build endurance. But then what's the second thing that happens? When you lift weights, it increases or it leads to your performance. And that performance could be, for those of you who are athletes, your ability to throw a ball or to shoot the ball or to run on the field. And then for those of you like me who are former athletes who used to be and now don't play anything anymore, it's still useful. It helps us unpack boxes on moving day. When I lift weights, it helps me to pick up my kids and not hurt myself in the process. It helps me to be stronger in moments where people need some help. So what does lifting weights lead to? Well, lifting weights leads to endurance and performance. 
The idea isn't that lifting weights in and of itself, the weight, a piece of metal moving up and down the ground, that's not really helping anything in the world. What actually matters about lifting weights, about working out, is what it leads to. And, and here's what I wanna suggest to you today. This is the same argument that James is making about trials and suffering and difficult things in our life. Like ultimately, James is gonna say this, that trials are going to lead to something. The idea isn't that the trial itself is good. It's not that you having cancer or you going through a divorce or you losing your job is actually a good thing in and of itself. No, the perspective that James is giving us, the way he wants us to think isn't bad stuff is actually good stuff. It's no, no, no. This bad stuff in this broken world that we experience is going to lead to two things. And here's the two things. Number one is endurance. Endurance. When you go through hard things, when you go through trials, when you go through suffering, you endure to the place where you can go through more later. Right now, you are able to endure more suffering than you have before because of the suffering that has come before in your life. Today, you are able to suffer longer. You are able to handle more weight in your life because of the suffering you've already gone through. Because trials and suffering and pain and hard days lead to endurance. But what's the other thing they lead to? They lead to performance. The capacity to actually help in this world, the capacity to actually do something for people in this world. When we suffer, it's not that the suffering itself, in and of itself, is good. It's good. We can consider it joy because of what it leads to, that trials lead to endurance, our capacity to take on the hard stuff of this world, and it leads to performance, our ability to actually help. Look, let me put it to you this way. That trials help prepare us to endure the pain of the world and help with the problems of the world. It enables us to endure the fact that this world is painful. That there are things that are going to go wrong. That there are things that are going to go wrong in your family, in your health, in your church, in your nation. And it helps us, it prepares us to endure that pain. But then furthermore, it helps us to help with the problems of this world. Where we're not just enduring it for our own sake, but because we've gone through hard things, because we've gone through trials and suffering and hard days, we're able to serve those in this world who are most in need. That's what trials lead to. In the same way that lifting weights in and of itself isn't this morally valuable activity. It's what it leads to that makes it beneficial. The same is true about trials. And the perspective that James wants us to have here is that those trials we walk through are preparing us, are helping us to become the type of people who can endure suffering and help with the suffering of the world. It goes on this way in verse five. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So, so this is one of those promises I love in the scriptures. And if you have your Bible open right now, I want you to circle this promise. I want you to underline it. I want you to highlight it. Almost every time I pray for someone, when they're in a difficult situation, I try to pray this prayer over them. That God, you promise us, you promise us that if we ask you for wisdom, you'll give it generously to us without finding fault. And so God, I ask that you would give me this wisdom. And I wanna challenge us today to be people who take this promise as seriously as any other promise in the Bible. And my concern for so many, even those who call themselves followers of Jesus, is this, is that we take so many of the promises of what God will provide for us in the Bible seriously, except this one. My contention is this, that, that so often we seek all of these things we think we need from God, except his wisdom. Let, let me put it this way. I think almost everyone listening has sought, we seek God's supernatural healing. 
So when someone's sick, and maybe that's you or, or a spouse or someone in your family or someone in your small group, and you pray, we seek after that supernatural healing because we believe that God can reach out of heaven and heal someone. We seek God's supernatural provision. We pray that God would provide for our bills and provide for our family and provide for our kids. We seek after that provision, believing that God can provide over and above anything we could generate on our own. We seek God's supernatural protection, right? When we travel, some of you, when you get on an airplane and the airplane starts to take off, you're just praying that God would protect you and get you there safely. God, would you take care of me and take care of my family? We seek a supernatural protection, we seek his supernatural salvation, right? Uh, like all of us believe that salvation isn't a natural thing that just happens. It's a supernatural thing that God gives to us. It is a gift that is given freely to those of us who would call on his name and we are saved through that. So, so, so here's my contention. I think for so many Christians, we seek all of the supernatural things of God except his wisdom. But like we ignore God's supernatural wisdom. And we ignore God's supernatural wisdom. And, and I think the terrifying thing is this, we do so because we think we've got it. We think we've got this on our own. Like we know we can't heal on our own and we know we can't save on our own. And we know we can't change reality on our own, but we tend to think that we are smart enough to deal with things. And so for so many people, prayer is their last resort rather than their first reaction. It's the thing they turn to only if every other option has failed rather than the first thing they do when things get complicated in your family, at your business, in a financial situation, on a thing you're doing in life where you're just trying to navigate some complicated situation like so many of you are right now. I think for so many of us, we ignore God's supernatural wisdom when he wants to provide that just like he wants to provide our salvation and protection and provision and healing. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse two says this. It says, when pride comes, then disgrace, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Like in other words, what this is saying is if you're the type of person who goes, I don't need God's wisdom. I've got it on my own. I'm smart enough. I've got this thing. If you become that type of person, disgrace is always gonna come your way. Disgrace is what is promised to you. Disgrace is what you're warned against. When you say, I've got this and I don't need God's wisdom and you don't immediately go to God in prayer, but you try to figure things out on your own. You try to figure out the family drama or the business situation or how you're gonna navigate a cultural conversation rather than asking God for help. But it says with humility, the humility that says, God, you promised wisdom and I don't have it right now, so I'm just gonna need your supernatural wisdom. When you have that humility, wisdom comes. So here's the question for you. The question as we wrap up 2020 here and as we head into 2021, what do you need to ask God for wisdom on as we begin 2021? And listen, I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe you know the answer to that question. Maybe you and your spouse keep talking about this subject over and over and over again, and you've talked about it endlessly, but you've never asked God for his supernatural wisdom. You've never held hands together as a couple and said, God, we need you to give us wisdom on this. You've never sat down with your roommates or with your friends or with your people at work who love the Lord with you and tried to seek God's supernatural wisdom. I want to ask you, have you called out to God on that? Have you cried out for his supernatural wisdom? Because I believe if you do, on the authority of the word of God, God will make good on his promise. And he will give it to you, not just in a little bit, but he'll give it to you generously without finding fault. It goes on this way in verse six. It says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt 
because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So there's the type of person who wants to humble themselves and ask for God's direction and ask for God's wisdom in their life. But then I read this paragraph, and and for me, I, I don't know if this is the same for you, especially if you've read the book of James before. This one always rattles me a little bit. And it rattles me a little bit because it says, when you ask, you must believe, which, which I do. I, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I want to follow after him. And then it says, and not doubt. And that's always thrown me a little bit. Because I'll just be honest enough, and, and, and maybe you'll be honest enough to confess that there are times I do experience doubt. There's times I don't know if God's going to answer prayer. There's moments of doubt. And so I start to feel this thing where, okay, I've had moments of doubt. And so therefore, it, should I expect nothing from the Lord? That's what this says, or at least that's how I thought this was reading. This is what I thought it said, that if I ever had doubt, I shouldn't expect anything from God. But I've become convinced reading this over and over and over again, really trying to understand what he's saying here, that that's not what's actually going on here. You see, I don't believe that James is referring here to an individual who occasionally has a feeling of doubt. I don't believe that's what's being referred to here in this paragraph, and I want to show you why, but here's what I want to say, that there is a warning in this text. It's not that we want to just throw away this paragraph here and ignore it. There is a warning here, and here's what it is. The warning is about regular direction, not your occasional discouragement. So there is a warning here in this text, and there's a certain type of people who should receive nothing and expect nothing from God, but it's not about your occasional discouragement. It's not the person who occasionally has doubt or occasionally doesn't know that God will answer prayer or occasionally doesn't know that God will show up. No, it's about your regular direction. That's what's being described here in the text. Let me give you a metaphor that helps me understand kind of what um, is being spoken about here. So I want to show you two animals here. And the first animal I want to show you is the jellyfish, okay? Um, The jellyfish might not sound like a spectacular creature to you, but I think that's one of the ideas that, that, that we can have in mind when we think about what James is saying here. See, here's the jellyfish, and the jellyfish doesn't really like make a lot of effort in life. The jellyfish just kind of gets washed along. And so if the current's going this way, the jellyfish kind of goes this way. And if the current goes the other way, it's just kind of like floating along. The jellyfish doesn't go like hunt down food. It just kind of waits for things to come to it, and it receives what just happens to come along its way. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced so many people in our culture, and maybe even some of you listening today, follow Jesus like a jellyfish. So what you do is this, just whatever the culture does, whatever people around you do, you just kind of fall in line. And whatever people are saying, you just kind of start believing. And so if people start teaching this or saying this kind of behavior is acceptable or this thing's okay, you just kind of drift along with whatever the culture says. However people in our culture dress and talk and act and spend their money and buy their cars and buy their homes, you just kind of float along with that. You're jellyfish. You're not setting a direction. You're not moving in a certain direction. The text we just read talks about the wind and the waves just tossing you around. I think so many Christians, perhaps someone listening to me right now, would be honest enough to say you're a jellyfish. And you just kind of move along with whatever is happening around you. And here's what James is warning James is warning that there is a type of person who just kind of floats along, who just kind of gets tossed every direction and has no core principles and no guiding light and no perseverance. That type of person should expect nothing from God. 
Meaning you shouldn't expect God to bless your life when you're just floating along with everything that our culture does and everything our culture says and every new fad and every new idea that celebrities put out there that we just kind of float along with that. That type of person's a jellyfish. That person, as the scripture is gonna say here, is tossed about by the wind and the waves. And that type of person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. But let me give you a different kind of animal, also in the ocean, also who deals with the wind and the waves. And that's the dolphin. You think about a dolphin, a dolphin's not like a jellyfish. Uh, A dolphin is setting a direction and swimming. A dolphin is using his abilities to go a certain way. A dolphin's not getting tossed around on the surface of the water. A dolphin dives a little deeper and is setting the direction, and this is how I'm going to go. And it's not that the current or the waves or the wind never knock a dolphin off course. It's that the dolphin has set its direction and knows which direction he's going. And that's what I want to suggest to you is what James is pleading with us to become. Not the jellyfish who just gets tossed around in the wind and the waves and goes whichever direction the culture says, but rather someone who sets their direction toward Jesus and says, I am going there no matter what. I'm going there no matter what it costs me, no matter who makes fun of me, no matter what happens in this world. This is my direction. I will not be deterred. Because ultimately, here's what's true for the dolphin. What's true for the dolphin is true for you. It's that your depth will set your direction. Your depth your depth in your knowledge of God, your depth in your prayer life, your depth in your generosity, your depth in your life of community, your depth will set your direction. And so I wanna plead with you to be a person who has depth of your knowledge of God, to be someone who has depth in your prayer life. Not just you pray before meals, but you actually set aside time on your calendar to pray, that you would have depth of community, that you would actually be honest and real with people in your small group, in your life, in your family that you would have depth and generosity, that you would be the type of person who is actually giving to the point where it scares you a little because that's where depth happens. Your depth will set your direction and it is the direction of your life, not your occasional doubt or discouragement that James is most concerned about. Now here's the last scripture we're gonna look at today in verse nine uh, through 11. It's gonna say this, that believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even though they go about their business. Now, what the text is describing is actually two different types of Christians, two different types of people. It's describing the poor Christian, which it describes in the NIV here that I'm reading out of as one in humble circumstance. And then it describes the rich Christian. Two different types of believers, two different types of people, the poor person and the rich person. Now here's what I want us to consider as we think about this text and we read about the poor person and we read about the rich person. I want you to do something for me and it's gonna sound strange because you're not in the room with me right now, but I'm gonna ask you right in your living room as you sit in your kitchen this weekend watching this, I want you to actually say something out loud right now. All right, I know it's gonna sound strange. Even if you're alone right now, I just want you to say these words out loud, okay? I want you to say two words, stop it. I want you to actually say it out loud. Say, stop it, stop it. Now, why am I saying stop it? Here's what I want you to stop doing. Here's what I want everyone who heard you to stop doing. I want you to stop thinking that the rich applies to someone else. I want you to stop thinking that when you read about rich people in the Bible, that it's describing someone other than you. I want you to consider that even though you don't think you are rich, 
compared to everything in human history, you are unbelievably, wildly, outside of the imagination of the people who wrote the Bible, rich. So, so often we think of rich as, okay, if I live in that neighborhood over there, then I'm rich. But the people in that neighborhood over there go, no, no, if I live behind the gates, then I'd be rich. And then the people go, well, no, it's not behind the gates. It's the people who have two houses behind the gates who are rich, right? Like no one ever thinks they're rich. But here's what I need you to hear me on. If you have a smartphone in your pocket and running water in your home and internet access in your home, if you are living in this nation, the richest nation in the history of human civilization, you're rich. In fact, if you go on the internet, you can look this up real quick for yourself. The average salary in the United States of America is just under $60,000. You plug that into a global wealth thing, it'll tell you that you're in the top 5% of global income earners. The top 5%. So you are absolutely the rich. I am absolutely the rich. You might not be the richest person in this community or in our nation or in your friend circle, but when the Bible talks about the rich, we need to stop thinking it applies to someone else. It applies to us. And that's not just because we're in Westlake Village or we're in this community or anything like that. It is because we live in the richest nation in the history of the world with wealth and luxuries that people in biblical times couldn't even imagine. And so the rich refers to us. And here's the image, the metaphor, the picture James wants to give you for the rich, which again, you heard rich, don't think someone else, you, me, my kids, all of us. Here's the picture James wants to give to us listening to my voice right now. The picture is that your life is like this flower. Your life is like this field of flowers that's here right now but can be gone in an instant. Your life is just like this. Your wealth, everything we've built, all of the things we've accumulated and acquired can be taken from you in a moment and ultimately will not sustain the pressure of this world. Like if you put something heavy on top of this flower, it will collapse immediately. Why? Because it was never meant to hold up anything with weight. See, right now what I wanna give you is two reality checks. Two reality checks when it comes to this picture that James gives us about our lives. Again, the rich being us, not some other person, it's us. Two reality checks we need to have. Here's the number one, that ultimately, wealth is fragile. It's fragile. It can be taken from you in an instant. You can lose your job. You can lose your home. You can lose your livelihood. This last year has taught us you can lose all of those things for no fault of your own. Through nothing you ever did wrong, it's fragile. And then here's the second reality check, that ultimately wealth is futile. Like even if you manage to hold on to your wealth throughout your entire life, it will not make you happy. It will not satisfy you. It will not give you ultimate meaning and purpose in this world. There are people who are rich beyond your imagination, have money you could never dream of having, who are miserable. They're miserable. And it's not because, it's not because they don't have enough money. It's because wealth is ultimately futile. It'll never actually accomplish what it promises to give you happiness and joy and peace and contentment in this world. And so we close here as we close out our final sermon of 2020. And as we head into 2021, in some strange way, I actually think this is a healthy thing for us all to realize. That as we start planning toward this next year, if your family is anything like mine, I, I love planning, I love budgeting and thinking about, okay, what can we do in this next year? How, what can we accomplish? All of the goals, all of the resolutions and ideas, all of those things are good things. And maybe you're even doing some financial planning, some tax planning for the next year, and that is a good, healthy thing. But would you remember that ultimately wealth is fragile and wealth is futile? 
And that if you count on your wealth or your possessions or your home or your car or your income or your business to give you meaning and purpose and ultimate fulfillment in life, it will always come up empty. But when you put those things in the rightful place to say wealth is a good gift, but it's not the thing that'll give me meaning and purpose and value in this world. Wealth is a healthy thing. I'm not against Christians having wealth. I'm against wealth having Christians, okay? That's what I'm against. I'm not against you making a ton of money, maybe more money than you've ever made in your entire life, but I'm against you making that money with the idea that that's what'll finally give you joy because it never has and it never will. Here's what I want to encourage you toward, and here's where I want to land as we think about going into 2020 or 2021, as we think about our trials, as we think about our challenges, the things we need wisdom for, the direction we're heading in life, as we think about kind of which way we're going, as we think about what we're going to do with wealth. I was thinking about how do you sum up a sermon like this that's hit so many subjects, and here's my answer. I think of the old hymn, and some of you know this well, the, the old hymn that tells us these words, to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, all the wealth, all the accomplishments, all the good days, all the hard days, all of those things will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Child of God, as you close out 2020 and head into 2021, may you turn your eyes upon Jesus. I know it'll bless you. I know you won't regret it. And I know that as you turn your eyes upon Jesus, you will become more like him every single day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for today and thank you for your word and thank you that we get to study it this weekend. Thank you for the book of James and how it challenges us, how direct it is, how wise it is, how it changes us and moves um, us toward obedience and action. And I pray for anyone listening today who needs to change something, who needs to change their perspective on something, change their behavior, change something going on. I pray not for their own willpower to do it, but I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would empower them to walk in spirit-filled, grace-driven obedience. God, may that happen here in our church. Father, we thank you for 2020, knowing this year was hard, and yet our perspective is that you're producing something, even in our church here at Calvary, that's going to give us endurance and performance in this world. Help us as we go into 2021 to serve the needs of this world, to bless people, but most of all, to keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for church this weekend, and we're looking forward to going into the new year as we start off next year, Saturday night. You can join us right here in this room. Sunday morning, you can join us outside. We're looking forward to gathering together in the new year as we live and love like Jesus together. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, and may he give you peace.